This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. So as we begin this message, uh, we've just finished a prayer time uh, that I think has stirred us in here and sensitized us to the topic that we're just about to cover, which when I was putting this message together, I wasn't thinking about abortion. I wasn't thinking about women uh, and men that have participated in abortion or lost children to abortion. That wasn't in my mind, but in our prayer time beforehand, and because of certain things that happened even yesterday uh, here on campus, it's definitely sort of thick and dense and just present uh, in the air. And I don't think that's an accident. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating, even my, my picture uh, is showing that life is a symbol. Uh, and you could, you know, for those of you that are getting this via podcast, uh, there's a picture of a little baby being held by hands of a mother and a father. It's, it's a pretty uh, precious picture. But you could stick the country of Haiti in that, and it's the same thing. It's, it's precious. And there's something about a child that is so dear, so sweet, that it's hard to describe. And to recognize that God's heart towards life is that is sometimes hard for us to grasp. But the subtitle to this, the title is The Divine Appraisal. The subtitle is Rightly Estimating the Importance of Life. Uh, We oftentimes will misappropriate value, and uh, this just happens in our culture. Right now, we have a lot of odd things taking place which are taking things that have value but overinflating their value, taking things that have extraordinary value and deflating their value. And we're in a culture where this is happening, and as a result, it's very, very important that we have a right estimation of the value that God is giving things. And that's what an appraisal is. An appraisal is actually to determine correct and appropriate value of something. So if we're going to have an appraisal, we don't want just man's appraisal of your life. Could you imagine if we all had to stand before uh, the bar of justice and we had to have a formal appraisal done by humanity of your life? Well, what if they disagree with you? What if they think that your skin color is the wrong skin color? What if they think your ideology or your worldview is incorrect? Well, they might esteem you as having zero value. But what if you're a criminal against the laws of that land? Could you imagine you could immediately be esteemed as having zero value when in actuality, God's divine appraisal of the same situation might come out different. And it's important for each one of us to actually allow God to run an appraisal on our life and for us to read it, for us to know what he says. And that's sort of what this message is. It's actually somewhat of a, well, my, <laughs> when I say it's somewhat of a short message, then someone could look at it as like a hour and 15 minutes. How is that a short message? It should be short, but if it turns into an hour and 15 minutes, we know that something went haywire in Eric when he was talking this morning. So uh, the other day, I, you know, we can just do this. We swap out values. And so uh, Kip, we'd come home from a workout and Kip, his nickname is Dub. 
And so I said, uh, Buck, I called Kip Buck, which is our dog's name. I said, Buck, put a collar or put a leash on Kip and take him uh, outside to go to the bathroom. So these things happen, you know, where we take the value of Kip and suddenly make him a dog and make the dog Kip and give him human value. You know, it's just these things happen. Uh, last night, uh, we had a gathering at our house, and uh, this lady uh, strolled by, and she, one of her big points of contention was uh, she found out that I ate meat, and that really disturbed her because to her, the value of an animal is in a sense, and even the way she was treating me, more valuable than me. And so as a result, she just thought I was the greatest criminal on earth. And I'm not, you know, I'm not against, I'm not for or against this whole, you know, eating meat thing. And I could, if, if you said, would you be willing to go without eating meat? That was actually my, my thought last night. If I could win this woman to Christ by giving up eating meat, would I be willing to do it? Yeah, eating meat's not the center of my life. That's not, I, now I could, give a biblical analysis of eating meat and show you that God, is, God says it's okay for me to do, right? However, I'm dealing with a worldview that is going to put the value of an animal, the value of an ant, higher than the value of Eric, and that's a weird worldview to encounter. It's like, this is strange. Again, it's a human estimation of value instead of a God one. And so we have a misappropriation of value. Uh, the Christian climate. Sometimes we live in a, a sort of a bubble zone. It's called Christianity, and we hang out with other Christians, and we begin to feel like we're rather normal when we're hanging out with other Christians. And then you have that brief encounter, that brief brush with the world out there, and you're like, wow, am I strange. <laughs> and as a result, it's important to remember what we believe and why we believe it. In other words, we don't just believe it because we have a consensus in here. We believe it because God has said it. And we need to remember that because when you get outside of your Christian bubble, your Christian climate, then you need to remember that. The Christian climate, there's, there's a climate that is created in all sorts of different things. As an author, when you're writing a book, you're creating a climate. And so one of the, the reasons why editorial work is so important on a book is because you are stuck in your own climate and you are not thinking always from other climates. And technically, if your goal is to write a book that can engage people in other climates, you need someone from another climate to read your book, which is very scary, by the way. If any of you have ever gone through editorial processes, uh, it, it's a unique experience. But in a sense, we want the same thing. We want not to just be in our bubble here, here in Windsor, Colorado in the year 2021, we want to actually have God's word come in from the outside and give an appraisal of our thoughts an appraisal of our beliefs, an appraisal of the way we are living our life. But technically, we want to know what he has to say on it. And so uh, this week, it was a, a really funny uh, story. Abby always seems to have a, a good funny story to tell because she goes, often she's in a different climate all the time when she's at gymnastics. And she's just so sweet and innocent in her environment, you know, and she doesn't always probably recognize some of the opposite vantage points that are around her. And uh, so this week, uh, the question came up, and they were all talking about their favorite cereal. And, you know, so Fruit Loops she, was like the big one. And all these girls are going around saying Fruit Loops, Fruit Loops, Fruit Loops. I don't remember one of them. might have been Lucky Charms. And Abby was sort of like, what? I've never even tried those before. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, there's definitely a climate that's been created in the Ludi home. And so they get to Abby, and her answer was... <clears throat> 
a brown rice cereal with coconut sugar. <laughs> and everyone looks at her like, what in the world? <laughs> That's how many of us feel uh, in this world. Uh, so uh, what's your favorite thing in the world? Uh, Jesus Christ with coconut sugar. You know, that's basically the way we feel. It's like, what? Are you serious? So when we are in that, we can be shaken when we walk into a different climate and when we enter into a different worldview that actually takes the value of life and sticks it in the toilet. Like the value of a man is in the toilet today. And yet, so as a man, I need to appropriate not what the world thinks about me. You know, I am a white-skinned male that just happens to be a strong Christian. I have everything going against me in that situation, and yet if I take my appraisal from the world, I could really be down in the dumps. I have to take the appraisal that God gives of what he says manhood is. Is it valuable to him? I think it is. And my skin color doesn't matter to my God. That's another thing I need to land on, that he's not giving me greater value or lesser value based on my skin that he delights in all skin tones, and praise God for that. And the fact that I'm a Christian and a believer, does, he, does that have value to him? Yes, it does, but it's interesting also to recognize that his appraisal of my value doesn't spike because I'm a believer. He still loves that one who is lost and is an unbeliever. He still gives value there, and so I need to understand how his evaluation of his estimation of life works. So I did a study on the most expensive real estate in the world. Interesting study. I'm not going to go into it as depth as I could. I'll just give you a summary of the five most expensive real estate properties in the world and where they're found. So Monaco is by far the most expensive, especially, uh, you know, Oceanside property. I mean, it's just like so startling how expensive it is. Uh, I don't remember what it was, but it's sort of like $1.5 million a square foot type of a thing. I mean, it's like so ridiculous that you just like can't even imagine. Uh, Hong Kong, London, Singapore, Geneva. So if you were appraising value of property, you would say these are the most valuable, precious properties in the world. Why? Because we have a monetary system that is when appraised, people are going to say that is worth more than these other places, okay? So there's a value that is associated with it, and that's how real estate appraising works. But I'm going to introduce you to the biggest, most expensive real estate transaction in world history. You guys ready for this one? I mean, this will, this will stun you, okay? Acts 20, 28, Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. Never in all of history has there been such a transaction as this. God is saying that is worth the blood, the life of my son. What that is doing, and you need to catch this, is it's sticking the value of life, the church, at that level of the blood of Jesus, which I'll go into what God says about the value of the blood of Jesus. But what you're seeing is it's inestimable. That's a, that's a hard word to say. Inestimable in its value. In other words, you can't, you can't actually give a correct value. It's beyond valuation. It is infinite, if you will, in its value. 
the most expensive real estate property in the world. Okay, now I just gave you a list of five different things, but that's an incorrect thing. Google is not picking up on this phenomenon, okay? That actually there is a greater value to a piece of property on this earth that any real estate uh, documentation is not going to pick up on. It's not like filed with your local county, this information. However, it's filed in the heavenly realms. It's called the book of life. So the most expensive real estate property in the world technically is you. Worth the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you. So I have five different options here that you just keep coming up. You, worth his almighty life given up. You, worth God coming to earth to save. You, worth God himself suffering and dying. You, of inestimable value, unfathomable worth. So I'm going to do this again. You know, so it seems like this same uh, title slide keeps coming up. The most expensive real estate property in the world. Now, some of you are feeling rather good right now. You're like, you know what? Thank you, Eric. You know, this is what I needed to hear today. But there, there's more to this that you need to hear, okay? The most expensive real estate property in the world. It's them. So when you look around you, you're going to see a them, okay? There's thems all over the room here. And actually, this is very important in how we think and reason as a Christian. First of all, we are settled in the fact that God has placed value here. Okay, that's important for you to land. You need to land your feet on that truth. You are valuable. Now you can turn outward and recognize that Jesus has made each and every one, made in his image, of that same inestimable value. So them, worth the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Them, worth his almighty life given up. Them, worth God coming to earth to save. Them, worth God himself suffering and dying. Them, of inestimable, unfathomable worth. So I'm going to define a doctrine here. And this is sort of a strange thing because it's not like this is a normal term, but it is. It's something that is clearly established in Scripture, and I'm going to give it a name. The doctrine of exquisite preciousness. That which is unlovely is loved. That which is unholy is pursued. That which is unrighteous is suffered for. That which is unworthy is died for. That which is weak is rescued. That which the world considers nothing is exquisitely precious. That's hard to grasp, I think, for us. We're still struggling with understanding the fact that God could forgive us of something we did in our past, and recognizing that this is part of the framework of what makes Christianity so other than anything else happening in the world. This is so astounding that the God of the universe, God could be anything, right? He's God, he's unchanging, he's always been the way he is, but what if you discover who he is and you discover at the very core of who he is, he's love. You discover at the very core of who he is, he's mercy. When you discover at the very core of who he is, he is inclined to your benefit. That doesn't change the fact that he is righteous and he is holy and he is just. Those are facts too. But it's amazing when you weave these together and you see the tapestry of how God is created, he is created with predominant characteristic that emphasizes a desire within him to see you set free. Not to see you penalized and convicted, for your crimes, but to see you set free from the power and the clutches of sin. That's his inclination. His inclination is first and foremost your freedom. 
He desires you. His desire isn't first and foremost to bring judgment. And a lot of us have that framework in our mind when we think about the God of the universe is he's holy, 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 and he's righteous, perfectly righteous, blazing righteousness, which is true. But the scriptures are going to clarify that there is an attribute that triumphs over other attributes, and that is mercy triumphs over judgment. That is a predominant attribute in his behavior. If, he, if judgment triumphed over mercy, we would have been gone a long time ago. But God is inclined towards your salvation. He is inclined towards your rescue. This is part of the doctrine of exquisite preciousness. So just try and fathom this. He desires you. Now we could just pause there and let that just try and sink in because you could sit there and see that on the screen and agree with it theologically. That doesn't mean you can receive it personally. He desires you because the first thing we can oftentimes do is kick that back and go, well, not me, maybe them, but not me. But it is important that you get the you in there, not just the them, that you establish the you and that you are able to honor God by accepting the you. That God desires you. He desires to set you free. He desires to forgive you, to wash you clean. You're like, but I'm an exception to the rule. No, you're not. You are the very apple of his eye. You are the one he is pursuing, almost as if everything else fades away. To understand the you helps you understand better the them. When you are forgiven much, you love much. God wants to first of all establish the doctrine of exquisite preciousness in your understanding so that he can change you. And he can then shed his love abroad inside of you to give it to the them. However, if, you, if it skips over you, it sort of bounces off you and you give mental assent to it, it's like, yeah, yeah, he loves me. I, I still remember there was this uh, one character in my life all growing up, and I was very close to him, and so I knew him well, and yet he would always tell people about the love of Jesus. But then there were certain moments, you know, like one of those moments when you're in a, a living room or you're in one of those side moments of, like even at LSU, you'll see it where you know, a, few, a little small group is praying off to the side and someone would come up to him and just say, I just feel like God wants you to know that he loves you. And this guy would just fall to pieces. It was like it spoke something to him that he had such a difficult time receiving that God loved him. He, he knew it for everyone else. So he was always sharing it with the them but he struggled to grip it for the you. He had a difficult time receiving that love. Isn't that just interesting how that can work? So in your mind, you know it, but for whatever reason, it's never permeated. But a Christian works from, first of all, that truth landing upon the soil of our life and moistening that soil so that the root system in that reality can grow up and bear much fruit. So he desires you. So much so that he gave up his life to purchase you. And so much so that he made a way for every bit of your filth to be absolved. And so much so that he supplied all the heavy equipment required to clean up your life. And so much so that he supplied all the building tools and the construction crew needed to build your life into a picture of his heavenly glory. It's called the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. 
It's, uh, it's the doctrine of exquisite preciousness. The unfathomable gospel. Okay, see if you guys can absorb this one. This is some good stuff. You don't receive what you deserve. If you receive what you deserve, I don't know, uh, we could just have a, a, an empty space and you could fill in what that is. What do we deserve for what we have done? Now, some of us are still maybe lost in the funk uh, that we have done a great job in our life and that you know, God has, is you know, so excited about the fact that you know, we've done some good deeds in our life. When in actuality, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. It does not measure up. It cannot compensate. It cannot offset. We are sinners, and we are in need of a Savior. And as such, we are all deserving of a very weighty judgment. And yet, we don't get what we deserve. We get, uh, I know, this is, this is really hard to fathom. We get what he deserves. He lives the perfect life, sinless, pure. He was the fullness of the deity, <laughs> showcased on earth in and through his life. He's going to do it perfect. And he is going to be exalted to the highest place. He's going to receive the inheritance of the kingdom. He receives the favor of the Father, like the coat of many colors is put around his shoulders. And it is. It's, he's covered in a rainbow, right? He has the favor. That's what Jesus gets. That's what he deserves. So what do you get? Not what you deserve. You get what, what he deserves? the triumph that he has achieved, he shares with you. The reward that he has gained, he shares with you. That's the doctrine of exquisite preciousness. You are exquisitely precious to your king, and he has pursued you. Now, I don't want you to fill in the them there. I want to hold on to that pronoun of you until you finally start agreeing with it. Because your life as a Christian is going to flow out of recognizing this personally. And yet we oftentimes are sort of like that, uh, I want to call it a slicker, but it's like a, a waterproof you know, jacket that you stick on in the rain, you know, bubbles up on it. And, and that's the way our soul can be with the truth. Is it wet? Yeah, it's wet, but it's not permeating. It's not soaking in. We're not getting it. We're, we're covered in it, and we know it. I'm out in the rain right now. Yes, God is, you know, quite a loving God. He's very merciful, but it's not soaking into you, your soul. It's not getting into the soil and changing the root system of your life. You don't receive what you deserve. You receive what Christ deserves. Oh, just a second. Sorry, guys. The unfathomable gospel. Here's another uh, twist on it. You don't give others what they deserve. Instead, you give them what Christ deserves. You see, when you catch this in your soul, the doctrine of exquisite preciousness, then you recognize your behavior alters because of his behavior towards you. He didn't give you what you deserved. So how could you start dishing out to others what they deserve if he has been so merciful to you, shouldn't you give mercy? If he has forgiven you, shouldn't you forgive others? You see, this is what flows out of the doctrine of exquisite preciousness. It's the logical reasoning that flows from the kingdom of heaven down to this earth, and it changes us. It sinks down into the soil of our soul, changes our root system, 
and says, he is love, therefore I want to give love. He has shown me mercy, therefore I want to give mercy. He has forgiven me, therefore I forgive others. Even 70 times 7. I want to give to others what he has given to me. And this is just how the unfathomable gospel works. And technically it is unfathomable to the people you give it to, too. So as a result, though someone in your life may be deserving of a stout rebuke and a kick to the rear end for what they have done in your life and a total rejection from you, you give them mercy and it startles them. The same way God's mercy should startle you. It's other than normal humanity. It's holy. It's an other behavior. It doesn't fit into the world's natural systems of behavior. It is a godly behavior, not a man behavior. And you and I can participate in this when we receive this from heaven. When we receive that gospel, we accept the amazing mercy and grace and love of Jesus for our own life. It changes us. It sinks into the soil and changes our root system. And what now do we bear fruit of? The same love, the same mercy, the same forgiveness that he has given to us, we now are able to give to others. But this starts with us receiving it. You see, we can oftentimes even show mercy and show love to others, but it's still, it's not out of the deep root system that is in the love of Jesus for us. It is more like a doctrinal passage where I am giving a truth to someone because I know it has to be true for someone, even though I'm having a tough time gripping it in my own life. Just try and fathom this. He desires them. So much so that he gave up his life to purchase them. Could you imagine if you looked at the person next to you and you recognize that they are so precious that the God of the universe came to this earth to pursue them? Now, what, what does that say about the person next to you? That's an important person. I mean, it instantly begins to prove to you that this is an important person. Okay, if uh, President Biden sent some kind of messenger here, it says the president is really looking for, you know, and it, it, they gave one of your names, you know, all of us would be like, wow. Now, you may not even like President Biden's politics, but you're still impressed with the fact that the president of the United States is calling someone in here by name and asking for them. Okay, that's nothing compared to the king of the universe coming and laying down his life for them. So much so that he made a, very, a way for every bit of their filth to be absolved. And so much so that he supplied all the heavy equipment required to clean up their life. And so much so that he supplied all the building tools and the construction crew needed to build their life into a picture of his heavenly glory. Matthew 13, 46. When he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So many of us have heard this story and we, we recognize it. Many of us, when we appropriate the story, are thinking of someone in our position who is going to see something of inestimable value, this pearl of great price, and because it is so valuable, we're going to forsake everything else. We're going to sell it all so that we could acquire this, okay, which is true. That is part of how the gospel works, just like Mary of Bethany. She's going to esteem the value. She's going to rightly appraise the value of the Christ. So she's going to take the most precious thing in her life, her spikenard. She's going to break it out on it and say, you're worth it. Okay, she is going to rightly esteem the value of Christ. And I think that that is a perfectly fine way of handling that. 
And yet there's another way of handling it. This reflects the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ is going to see something of great value. And he is going to give up everything in order to get it. That's an amazing twist on the story, but that's the gospel right there. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. By the way, you were not sold at the slave market for five bucks. That's important for you to know. You were bought, and you could get immediately offended by that. It's like, excuse me? I was bought? Yeah, you were bought. And the Bible's going to go further to describe how you were bought and for what price you were bought. And you are the most expensive piece of property in the history of the world. I know many of you are impressed with Monaco, you know, Oceanside property. It's like, wow. You know, whatever it is. Let's, let's just say 1.5 million per square foot. Okay, now that's, that's, that's Eric's memory. I don't know if that's exactly what it was, right? But that's pretty valuable. What would you be valued at per square foot? That's a weird thought. <laughs> but it is so much greater than Oceanside property in Monaco. You are of such exquisite value. And what's funny is you don't even know that. It's like your Oceanside property in Monaco walking around in Windsor, Colorado right now, and no one realizes how valuable that is. What your job is to do is to not brag about your value. That would be awkward, you know, as you're wandering around Windsor going, hey, I'm more valuable than Oceanside property in Monaco, you know, and people are like, okay. <laughs> but what you need to begin to do is turn around and look at everyone around you and say, they are more valuable. They are the most valuable piece of property on earth. That's how a Christian thinks. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought at a price, do not become slaves of men. There's a reasoning that flows out of this. You have been bought and paid for. Do you understand the doctrine of exquisite preciousness? Do not take this very valuable piece of property and give it over to men. You must give it to the one who deserves it. And so the logic of the gospel is going to say, no, 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 don't, don't mishandle this treasure. Jesus Christ gave everything to purchase that property. Let's, let's, let's handle it right. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Like I said, you were not redeemed, purchased for five bucks. This is the most valuable thing in the entire universe was used to purchase you. You cannot get something more precious than that. So the word precious is... I just cut to the chase and just gave you a simple definition because we could spend a lot of time just on the word precious, but you know, I, I figure I'll just get it, make it simple. It's of the highest value. So that which is of the highest value in all the heavenlies, the precious blood of Jesus, was used to procure you. So this property known as you and them 
was bought and paid for, not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Acts 20, 28, he purchased the church of God with his own blood. This is what's called the reward of his suffering. This is what he came to gain. And so how could we not give it to him? I mean, isn't that the greatest crime is to withhold the property that Jesus Christ came and gave up everything to gain? But when you recognize first how valuable that makes you in God's eyes, the world may not look at you as valuable. That means nothing to you. Because in God's eyes, the one who truly gives the correct appraisal, the one who is able to give a proper estimation of who you are, the only, ma- the only opinion that really counts is his. He says, exquisitely precious. And as a result, when you know that, you can go from your climate into another climate of weirdness. We've got a lot of weirdness going on in our world. And they could look at you and say, you're worth nothing. They could even say, kill him, crucify him. And guess what? It doesn't shake you. Because in the depths of the soil of your life is a root system that is firmly holding on to the rock of truth. And you know your position in Christ. You know where you stand with him. And you can smile in your inner man saying, thank you. And you can even look at the one who is snarling at you and crucifying you and see their value and shock them by loving them in that moment because you know that they matter to Jesus, which is what great Christians throughout history have done is they've turned the tables in those moments of trial, like Betsy Ten Boom, one of my favorite stories, when she's being kicked with that steel-toed boot and her sister Corey is so upset. And Betsy's like, please, Corey, please, Corey, he, he's never known the truth. Just love him. God loves him. Like a just bruised, broken ribs because of this guy. He deserves our spite, our hate. Mm-mm. We need to think like Betsy. And we need to even tell and remind one another, no, that prison guard, that Nazi prison guard, has value in God's eyes. He is of inestimable worth to God. Jesus Christ purchased him. It doesn't mean he's given himself over to Jesus, but he's valuable. And we need to remember that. Acts 20, 28, and this is the adapted, Eric adapted version. He purchased us by paying the highest value. The principle of especially them. So we have you, we have them, and now we have another category of especially them. And if you're following my Daily Thunder series on Friday we were going through, it's called the Pursuit of Guthrum, and Guthrum is the ultimate bad guy in this medieval period. He's a Viking king, and he is just evil as all evil can get. I mean, he's just bad. He's like a Hitler back in the day, right? And there is going to be such a twist in the story. I don't really want to give anything away, but he's going to be the especially them. And Alfred, King Alfred, Alfred the Great, is going to, as a Christian king, pursue the soul of Alfred, or of, of, of Guthrum. It's like that is one of the most ridiculous things to do. He's just a bad guy. Eliminate him. Instead, he's going to say, and Jesus died for him. I mean, it is a shocking turn in history, right? But it's the principle of especially them. There is something about these 
these, I'm going to put quotes around, them, right? The them, they're, they're either sitting next to you or, you know, they're down the street or they're uh, somewhere else in the world right now, but they're them. They value, they're valuable to God. But the ones that have an extra snarl on their soul, when the Salvation Army would come into a new location, William Booth's philosophy was, go after the most infamous sinner. And when you turn the most infamous sinner, then the entire community usually follows. It's the especially them. Yeah, God has a special heart for that one over there. That one stinks more than anyone else in the town. That one hates Christianity more than anyone else in the town. Why would we go after them? Especially them. There is something about the especially them that should freshly shock us as believers. It's sort of like the older brother who has been hanging out in the house the whole time and then the especially them goes wandering off and spends the uh, inheritance. Remember him? He's, he's in with the pigs. He's an especially them. Okay? For most of us, we'd cut him off and we say, look, look what he's done. He deserves no mercy. And yet God is going to reveal a very, very different behavior towards the especially them than we would naturally have. Which is why in our own life, when we become an especially them, we have a very difficult time appropriating the mercy of God. Because the way we would behave would be like the older brother. And so as a result, we can be very harsh towards the especially them, even if it's especially us. But God is going to go out of his way to clarify in his doctrine of exquisite preciousness that the especially them have a special space in his heart. So the brand of love that God has shed abroad in our hearts has been made available to us especially for such as these. These men and women are empty, hurting, lost, and dying. Christ's blood was shed for them. Would we be willing to shed our blood for them as well? Could you imagine that question? Remember, as he gives you mercy, you give mercy. As he gives you love, you give love. As he forgives you, you forgive. As he lays down his life for you, would you be willing to lay down your life for an especially them? By the way, we were all especially them. Just because you happen to be hanging out in the household of God now doesn't mean that you shouldn't understand what it means to be an especially them. Because every single one of us has been in that place at some point in time. And he died for us when we were especially them. Would we be willing to lay down our lives for an especially them? Matthew 18, 10 through 14. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. Uh, should I have said for one of these especially them? In the Hebrew culture, the Jewish culture, there were different ways that they could begin to diminish and demote the value system of God. Remember I said every culture, they sort of can take certain things that have value, but they over-amplify value, like a Pharisee as an illustration. They over-amplify the value of a Pharisee, and they devalue women and children. Okay, And so you see that even in the Jewish culture, that this was a problem that they struggled with. And so this little child is going to be brought into the midst because they're arguing about who's the greatest. You know, classic disciples, right? They're arguing about who is the greatest. So Jesus is going to give a lesson on the especially them. And this is uh, a part of that lesson. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now many of us skip over that first statement because we're like, oh, okay. We don't really think about it, but what is he saying? 
Do you recognize that the ones that are set to guard these little lives have like chief angels? I mean, these are like the big dog angels protect these little ones that you're saying don't matter here. And I'm telling you in heaven, it's the big dog angels that are taking care of these little ones. So do, do you get the point? These are especially them. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is strain? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. See, this isn't especially them story. I don't know if you're catching it but he rejoices over the one that he found, which was lost. The others didn't even wander. They were there doing their job, eating their grass, you know, doing what sheep do. And yet this one is a misbehaving bad sheep. He is not doing what the shepherd has asked him to do. He is a wanderer. He is lost. And the shepherd is going to rejoice more over the discovery, the finding, the rescue of the one than over the 99 that stayed in the house. It's an especially them principle. And so if, if Paul was speaking, it's like, well, so that doesn't mean we should go off and wander away so that we can receive that grace. That isn't the way it works. Don't just go sin more so that grace can abound. At the same time, when you do sin, it sure is encouraging to know that grace can abound and that your shepherd is after you, especially you. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, one of these especially them, should perish. And when you catch this and it sinks down into the soil of your soul, it needs to change you, but then it needs to work through you. He doesn't desire anyone that's lost out there to perish. It is a movement of how he is wired. The lost Jesus has a special drive, a special zest, a special gumption to find them and get them back. So he's going to go out of his way. Remember these three stories in Luke 15? One of them is the, the lost sheep, which is sort of a reprise of his great story, because the first one seems to be to the disciples. This one seems to be to the scribes. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Do you guys see a similarity of any of those? There's one word that seems to... Uh, be sticking around in the middle of each of those titles. It's lost. By the way, that's not good to be lost. If you're a sheep that's wandering off, you're a disobedient sheep. You know, the, the shepherd's not like, hey, go wander away from me. No, he's saying, stay close. Stay right here by my ankle and you'll be fine. The lost coin, that's a disobedient coin, guys. I'm not exactly sure what, you know, how your coins behave, but when your coins go running off, that's not what you're asking them to do. Hey, please, coin, could you go uh, you know, find a, you know, something to hide under and be lost for a couple weeks, even though I desperately need you? You see, that coin is a disobedient coin. The prodigal son in the lost son is not doing what he is supposed to do. He is doing something that is against the Father's desire and design. And yet, Jesus is going out of his way to clarify. And it's not just for them in that time period, it's for us now. This is what makes him tick. 
The order of operations. So this is going back a couple weeks. We had a message called the Battle of, Battle of Liege, and we covered Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, one of the most controversial scriptures in the Bible. Why I, why I happen to be heading in towards these battles uh, over the last three weeks, I'm not exactly sure, other than that the Holy Spirit seems to be tugging me and bringing me into it. However, I feel that there's something important that we need to clarify in the body of Christ. But algebra has an order of operations. What, what do we say? It was... Uh, Parentheses, then exponents, then multiplication, then division, then addition, subtraction. Okay? Some of you are like, you love your algebra and you're all over that. Some of you are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> you know that God has an order of operations in how he functions. And if you get out of the order of operations in algebra, this is just a good lesson for all of you that maybe haven't gotten to algebra, or maybe some of you that have forgotten your algebra that you could do the individual function of like addition correctly, but if you do it out of order, you get the entire question wrong. In God's order of operations is something known as judgment. It is in his order of operations, but if it is placed out of order, you get the whole problem wrong. And many of us come to judgment both on our own soul and our own condition and on the condition of others way out of place. It is not the place that God has it. And as a result, it is needful that we refresh our order of operations and don't measure it based on the systems of this earth. Right now, there is very hasty, quick judgment towards anyone in this world that stands against certain things. It's almost instant. You're immediately classified. You're cut off. You're decommissioned. You're fired from your job because of very, very subtle things. Mercy is not our specialty right now in the American system. It's judgment. And as a result, we are prone to following suit. One of the things I noted in this last election is there was a lot of Christians involved in a lot of the same behavior as the world. The world was accusing and the Christians were accusing back. The, the world was fault-finding and the Christians were fault-finding right back. This isn't how a believer functions. And so as a result, it's important that we freshly get outside of our climate and remember God's statements on the matter, that he has an order of operations. And in his order of operations, mercy is the first desire of God. And always the first desire of God. In every situation, you can say, well, it was the first desire last time. What about this time? It's always the first desire of God is to give mercy. It's always. That's the position he's in. And so here's the order of operations that I taught you. I don't know how many of you remember this because it was a very, very helpful uh, thing that I gave you, and that's M-H-S-L-S-P-F-J. I can't believe some of you forgot this. But, and then I gave you a little memory technique. My half-sister Linda sews pajamas for janitors. Okay, this is the, this is the order of operations for uh, the kingdom of heaven. So here's a little help for you. The first thing God is going to do in his order of operations is give mercy. The second thing he's going to do is he's going to hunt for a reason to give mercy. The third, he's going to seek out a reason to give mercy. Number four, he's going to look for a reason to give mercy. Number five, he's going to search for a reason to give mercy. Number six, he's going to probe for a reason to give mercy. Number seven, he's going to forage for a reason to give mercy. That was a tough one. I had to get an F in there, and that was a, a weird one. So forage, if some of you are like, that is odd. Yeah, it is. But hey, when you're trying to do in order of operations, you know, this is not that easy. Some of you, you know, you can make your own and try and sell me on the fact that it's better. And now look at number eight, Judgment. It's there in the order. God will prove just, and he will judge the quick and the dead, as it says. He will have a white throne of judgment. However, 
His desire is to give mercy in this season of your life. And he is seeking to turn you to his mercy. He desires you to receive his mercy so that you do not need to come under judgment. Judgment, the statement next to it, is only after the root of mercy has been utterly and thoroughly explored. You see, judgment will come to those that harden, those that resist the Holy Spirit's wooing, those that take the Holy Spirit's offer of mercy and shove it back at them and don't receive the one avenue of salvation that exists in and through the shed blood of Jesus, then judgment is there. And that's a fact. But for you right now, you don't need to experience judgment. You can receive the mercy of God, which he is desirous to give. So here's what we're going to finish with. Remember, you are exquisitely precious. They, that's the them, they, you could look next to you and just sort of give a wink, you know, like I understand. That's, he's talking about you. He's talking about you. They are exquisitely precious. By the way, I never like it when people ask me to do things where I have to say to the person next to you, I love you. You're like, uh, yeah, that's always awkward. You're always glad you're sitting next to people, you, like your family members when those types of things happen, as opposed to this guy you've never seen before. He's like, hi. <laughs> so sorry to do that to you guys. I mean, I did something to you I don't usually like someone doing to me. But they are exquisitely precious. Now, brace yourselves, guys. And especially they are exquisitely precious. There's a lot of especially they in this world that even some of us have already written off. There are people in this world that are hatching plans right now to destroy us, to destroy the way we think, the way we live. They want to penalize us. They want to incriminate us for the fact that we believe in Jesus and want to follow him. But you do not Respond to them the way they are treating you. You respond to them as an especially them. You respond to them with the same mercy that God has given you when you were an especially them. You give them the same forgiveness, the same love that he gave to you when you were an especially them. And as a result, the unfathomable gospel will spread through this world because we don't behave as the world behaves. We behave as he behaves. And the way we understand that behavior is our sins are forgiven. He takes those that have been forgiven much and he trains them to love much. So as a result, if you have a lot to be forgiven, praise God. Praise God. We're not praising him because you sinned. We're praising him because he's a good God and he specializes in mercy, even for your situation. Father, I ask that you would showcase this mercy to each one of us that is present here right now. That we would see it, that we would know it, that we would taste it personally so that we could give it to those around us that so need it. Lord Jesus, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the doctrine of exquisite preciousness. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. 
For more information, go to live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.